Hey, my name's Alex and this is my podcast, Alex Listens. Um, normally I talk about like philosophy and ethics and race and identity and mental health and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so if this is your first time either watching or listening, um, welcome. Nice to meet you. Uh, a bit about me, I'm 23. I'm currently in self-isolation in Melbourne after um, spending nearly 10 months studying in London. Um, I study philosophy uh, and yeah, um, I, I mean, if you're interested in, in learning a bit, a bit more about me, um, my website is, there'll be a link in the bio, alex.co, Alex, A-L-E-K-S. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, um, today I wanted to talk about, uh, something very dear to me. Um, and as trigger warnings are something that I respect, um, this episode, this video, um, this podcast will, uh, touch on serious themes um, those of depression, anxiety, um, and suicide. So, um, yeah. Um, okay. So, um, you might see that I have this book here and I have, I don't have much written down apart from three dot points, um, which are the kind of the main things that I wanted to talk about today. Um, so the first thing is depression and isolation. Um, the first things are depression and isolation. Um, so yeah, I guess a while ago, maybe two, three months ago, I recorded maybe no longer, actually, it would have been last year. I recorded an episode which kind of outlined the outlined my understanding of the fundamentals of my experience of depression. Um, mainly I was kind of exploring, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, I was exploring, uh, symptoms, um, and the way they manifested and the way they made me feel. Um, and I guess my depression is, is severe. Um, it is, it fluctuates between kind of, uh, being extremely debilitating to being moderately debilitating as it is right now. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, also one thing that I didn't mention that I'm going to talk about, um, which I've actually been very, very hesitant to talk about for a number of personal reasons. Um, but I realized that the personal reasons were actually, um, kind of really selfish, uh, and they were, um, they were a product of me being a child of a very competitive world. And so I was hesitant. Initially, I was very hesitant to talk about my depression because, um, I didn't want it to, uh, impede my, capacity to become employed. Um, because yeah, uh, 
this kind of stuff, um, this kind of stuff is only recently becoming normalized discussion of mental illness. Um, and you can, if you want to see how, how recent it is, if you look at the, uh, the Australian yesterday, no, two days ago, the prime minister of Australia, Scott Morrison and, um, a, a woman in charge of, uh, kind of directing money towards mental health. She referred to it as mental unwellness. Um, and maybe, maybe, I mean, I've never heard mental unwellness used before to describe my illness, but, you know, maybe it was a slip of the tongue, but, um, you know, even in the upper echelons of society where people are responsible for kind of delegating tasks and money and that kind of stuff, allocating money. Um, yeah, you can see how, you know, this conversation, oh, well, it seems like the conversation is recent and, and especially older generations, because I, I would just say that as we age, it appears as though we become less cognitively flexible. Um, and feels like my generation, although, you know, it kind of, it's only been in the past two or three years, I'm 23. So since I was 20, I felt a kind of push to destigmatize discussion around depression, anxiety, and that kind of stuff. Um, there's a real chasm between millennials and earlier generations. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was saying, I was trying to explain why I felt uneasy about talking about my depression one, and then my experience with antidepressants. Um, and I guess the main reason was, yeah, as I said, I fear some kind of consequence. I fear being seen in a particular way. Um, and I fear people making judgments about the kind of person I am without actually giving me the time or space to, um, for them to actually experience who I am. Because, um, those of us who are depressed and those of us who are anxious people, it feels like it may feel like an incredibly central part of your experience, um, of everything. I mean, yeah, like I've seen psychologists and psychiatrists for a very long time, um, on and off, but kind of consistently for three years now. Um, and you know, again and again, I've been told that these pathways towards anxious thoughts are so robust and so strong and have been trained meticulously over the course of my entire life because I'm an anxious person and I always have been. Um, and so undoing these pathways, oh, not undoing, but trying to be aware of these pathways is like trying to be aware of your default reaction to things, which is really hard because that is what feels most normal. Um, anyway, I'm still, I'm kind of dancing around the point that I want to make before I actually begin talking, which is that I, I don't want, I don't want people to be afraid to talk about their experience of mental illness out of a fear that it's going to have social or financial repercussions. I don't want that for me and I don't want that for anyone else. Um, so yeah. And I guess a reason why I've, I kind of feel more comfortable talking about this kind of stuff now is because I realized that I don't want to be around people who don't, I don't want to engage with people. 
well, not engaged, but I mean, I don't, I wouldn't consider, I don't want to consider someone to be someone who is close to me, who is a person that doesn't give me the space and time and that I, that I may need because I am a person with a, um, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. An illness, um, a disability, a, uh, so it's something, I mean, yeah. Um, medically it's referred to as a disability, but, um, I guess it's, it, it still doesn't feel normalized enough. And when, when I hear the word disability, I think of, I don't think of mental illness. Um, or I think of severe mental illness and I guess depression and anxiety are severe mental illnesses, but still, um, they are only maturing into that category as we speak. Um, okay. So, um, my introductory preamble is over. Um, and now I'm going to talk about, um, my concerns about being in isolation and, uh, the impact of not having access to, um, the people who I trust, not having access to them in the flesh and having to, you know, be one and a half meters apart or having to be in total lockdown, um, which is the case in London. And, um, I left before the lockdown. Um, yeah. Okay. So recently the Australian government has created this kind of call service where you can call your therapist or you can call a GP and they have, um, given some money, although it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's enough. Um, compared to, you know, the demands of, I think Virgin Australia, an airline is asking for $1.5 billion, something around there, um, alone. Uh, the Australian football league has received massive funding to kind of, um, I guess they're cutting the wages of their players. Um, and they've, I think they've sacked or temporarily suspended the employment of 70% of their workforce. Um, and so you hear about these big institutions, which are receiving, which are in trouble, obviously. Um, but they're receiving support. Um, and then you hear about this kind of measly, I don't know, $50 million that's given to mental illness, um, to services treating mental illness. Um, and it's just, it's not acceptable. And that's not what this podcast is about. But um, that was upsetting for me to hear that still the priorities of our government and of our society are bailing out the financial, bailing out the institutions which yield immense financial gain um, or which accrue capital, whatever, I guess mental illness doesn't accrue capital. It just accrues, <laughs> um, unpleasant sensations for me most of the time. Okay. So in isolation, as I was saying before, my concern is that I, that I, along with everyone else, um, I am going to have, we are going to have our worlds radically changed. I mean, they've already been radically changed, but it's going to keep changing universities online. Um, my jobs are gone. Uh, um, 
and my I've, I haven't seen my friends since I've returned home. Um, and like these are just weird things to say because until the coronavirus, I took all of them for granted, um, including access to mental health services. So I was seeing a psychiatrist in Melbourne. Um, I was seeing a psychologist before that. The Australian government has kind of semi-generous uh, um, you can get like a mental health care plan. I'm sure the Australians listening will know what this is, but you know, you can get a number of mostly covered sessions, um, paid for by the government, by the taxpayer. Um, when I was in London, the NHS, the national, uh, which is the national healthcare service, the kind of in Australia, it's called Medicare in America. It's called, um, (laughs) yeah, uh, not much. Um, but yeah, in 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 the in London, I tried to see a psychologist, and I was told that there was a nine month waiting period, um, unless I wanted to go private. Um, and I mean, that's just that was just really sad, and that kind of, uh, I guess I I felt as though I had adequate support because I had lovely housemates who were emotionally intelligent and willing to kind of engage with me and my um, my feelings, um, but. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful for Australia, the Australian uh, public health care system um, and the support that I feel that I felt in the past. One major part of one major step forwards that I took was uh, trying to trying to liberate myself from the fear of discussing things that I felt. Um, And yeah, uh, a lot of that came through the interpersonal connection between myself and my, I guess my most recent psychiatrist. Um, And that interpersonal space is being, is gone. Um, I can't, People who are seeing their therapists, their psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever, um, if they're doing it, it's over the phone um, most of the time. And while that's great, that service is available, um, It, I worry that a fundamental part of the psychiatric transformative experience is the bond, the interpersonal bond that you feel when you're close to someone who has a profound knowledge of what you're experiencing. Um, And I'm worried about that happening through the phone because even now when I'm talking to a camera and I have a microphone in front of me, um, I feel, yeah, there's this, I feel a real distance from the audience, um, from the listener or from the viewer. Um, And I have total, I'm, I mean, like, I feel quite comfortable talking about my depression and my anxiety. And I guess I'm not really, uh, I don't, I'm not going into the, you know, the personal, uh, things that have contributed to my experience. But, you know, when I do that, I don't really want to do it over the phone, but none of us do. And that's just the reality of, um, the current situation. Um, yeah, so I'm not really sure what I was trying to say, but I, I just, I guess I'm worried for 
those people around me who don't have established support networks outside of their therapists. Um, and a lot of people who have mental, who suffer from some kind of mental illness don't have the privilege of seeing a therapist. And I worry for them even more because, um, I mean, I've started feeling a kind of weird detachment from reality after having been self-isolating in a house. I'm with my mom now. Um, but yeah, after self-isolating in a house for 10 days, um, and I guess, you know, a lot of things, there's jet lag, there's some kind of weird culture shock, like, yeah, the sun, there's so much sunlight here. It's honestly like that, that's, that's amazing. It's amazing. And it's also really unsettling because this, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think my body, I think my body forgot what vitamin D was in the UK and suddenly it's had to relearn how to metabolize it or whatever. Um, yeah. So I, one thing that I need to do is try and talk to people, uh, either over the phone or on video call or something, not over text because text is awful and it's very hard to, um, convey it's very hard to kind of contribute it's it's hard to attribute meaning to little blue boxes um yeah and yeah i guess like recently like uh, i've befriended a few people um and you know i've tried to shift those relationships from text to voice message or to phone calls and they're people that i don't really know that well um and that's been great because you learn a lot about someone from their inflection, intonation, um, you know, the way, the way they choose words and whatever. And I guess you have less access to that over text message. So that's one thing that I want to do now as someone who tends to drift um, when they spend too much time in their head and away from other people who remind you of of the real world um the second thing is uh i guess i'm trying to do things i've spoken a lot about um the relationship between purpose productivity and meaning i did an episode on that maybe four episodes ago so i'm not going to go into great detail but um yeah i guess i my depression manifests in a kind of sensation of motivationlessness um and that makes it hard for me to do things that will actually lift me back up to uh a sense of like just being lucid i don't feel lucid a lot of the time um yeah so those two things trying to socialize in 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 a way that is respecting the law and respecting society and those at risk and trying to do things with my with myself by myself um trying to engage with myself in a way that isn't a kind of brooding rumination that is silent and that isn't kind of trying to engage with something that i consider to be meaningful like this podcast which has become my central has kind of become the central thing in my days because otherwise like I have books, um, 
I have some work to do for uni, but you know, uni has just the university experience online, especially with something like philosophy is dreadful. Um, tutorials online is like, yeah, it's like trying to learn how to socialize again. Um, not that I ever really had a, like, not that I was ever really aware of learning how to socialize in the first place, but trying to navigate online tutorials with a tutor who's not very tech savvy. It's just like, yeah. Um, okay. So I've kind of gone through the first two dot points, which were uh, depression in the isolation and support. Um, I guess one one other thing that I need to say, that I want to say about support is that it took me a long time to realize that my family can't provide me the kind of support that is actually going to be helpful for me. Um, and that's, that's, that's not easy for me to say. Um, that's upsetting for me to say because uh, I, have to, um, I have to look elsewhere um, to friends and to my psychiatrist. Um, and I wish, I wish I could look to my family because they are the people who I have shared the most with, well, to my mom, not really to my dad, but to my mom. Um, yeah, my mom is exceptionally helpful and I don't, I mean, parents are often the most selfless people we know. Um, in this case, my mom, not my dad, um, but yeah, uh, it's sad. I feel sad that I can't turn to her for advice about my mental health and I've tried, but it just doesn't really work. Um, and I have, I've been fortunate enough to have befriended some people who are incredibly emotionally intelligent and who can navigate these spaces really carefully and really respectfully and who can ask me the right questions and move me to the right place and get me to feel the right thing at the right time. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that our family is often our first port of call for everything. Um, and I've realized that for my depression and for my anxiety, talking to my family makes things worse. Um, so I guess this is just a reminder to, to reach out to those friends who are struggling, who have struggled in the past, because now is a time where people are probably going to be struggling more, um, maybe more than they ever have, um, financially, as well as, um, you know, with, in terms of their well-being. Um, but it's also a time to look in, um, and, Looking in is a pretty weird experience because you probably won't like, well, I don't know, may, maybe you'll like what you find, but from my experience and from the conversations I've had, a lot of the time people don't like what they find. Um, and yeah, uh, as I get older, I realize that the kind of steps forward that I take, which make life feel easier for me, are steps which allow me to feel more comfortable with the way I am in the world. Um, so for a long time, I refused to accept that I was introverted and I would force myself to go to lots of different social events. And I joined all of these 
different things at university, all of these committees, how to like try to get as many leadership roles as possible, whatever. And then I was like, this is actually fucking me up um, a lot. And I, it was hard for me to sacrifice these things that felt familiar and because everyone else was socializing around me. Um, and it was hard for me to let that go and to kind of return or turn inwards and prioritize, uh, prioritize the messages that I guess I felt I was receiving from my mind and from my body. Um, and this is where the third dot point comes up, which is the weird line between self-obsession and, um, regulation and self-sacrifice because a lot of therapy and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the conversations I've had with my psychiatrists have been about my experience, my story, my, the people around me, everything is through my lens. Um, and sometimes I worry that I'm being that like the decisions I make are fueled by this kind of weird narcissism where I'm like, I don't want to do that. Or I don't want to see you. Or I don't want to talk to you because it's going to make me feel bad. Or it's going to make me feel stressed or something. Um, and I've become very good at drawing that line and being like, no, I'm not going to do this. And I feel pretty ruthless. I'm like, no, like there's literally nothing you can tell me that's going to make me do that or go there. I'm just going to do my thing. Like while I was in London, uh, a lot of people who go and study overseas, a lot of people who I know who go and study overseas have this incredibly social experience and they go drinking all the time and like, um, there are gigs and whatever and parties. And I know that that stuff doesn't sit with me very well. And so I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm not going to do any of it. And so I didn't, I think I went out once twice. I went out twice in London. One was like a few days after my birthday and the other time was on the eve of the election and (laughs) the outcome of that was awful um and yeah that was that didn't really make me feel very good but it didn't make anyone else feel very good anyway I don't really know how to talk about the relationship between self-obsession and narcissism and um and self-sacrifice Um, and when I say self-sacrifice, wait, let me, let me try and define these terms. So when I say self-obsession, what I mean is like thinking about the world as though it revolves around you and your experience. Um, and so as someone who suffers profoundly from depression and anxiety, a lot of my decisions are based around how I think things are going to make me feel. Um, and I prioritize me a lot of the time. I come first and then, and like, obviously, obviously like it's more nuanced than that. Like there are people who I care very much about who, uh, I will see regardless. It's not as, it's not as if, you know, someone's going to be like, yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm reasonable. Um, I have values. I have a kind of ethics that I try and live by. Um, but sometimes I worry that I, And my mom has said this to me a lot. Um, My mom tells me that she thinks that my, that 
the greatest shortcoming of my generation is the way we have been told that we are important as individuals. Um, because yeah, I feel as though my entire education experience was one great lesson about how I fit into this big competition and either I do well by climbing the ladder or I don't do well by falling down. Um, and that does really weird things to, I feel like that's done really weird things to my psychology. Um, it's made me really competitive. Um, it's made me kind of, I have a weird, very weird relationship with progress and productivity and, and I'm like the least realistic person ever. I did an episode on how unrealistic I am. It's called on being realistic. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess one thing to think about during these times is all of our decisions have an impact on ourselves and on others. Um, and there's nothing we can do about that. Um, I really don't believe that there are many things that a human being can do that have a net neutral impact on the world. Um, yeah, one of my, one of my closest friends recently went through a very strange, uh, a very strange household situation where people were leaving because of the coronavirus and people who she was very close with, um, yeah, they, they were making very weird decisions, um, deciding to leave the state, deciding to go live somewhere and, and, you know, saying, I need to do this for myself. I need to do this because I'm a depressed person. I need to do this because X, Y, Z. Um, and sure, maybe you do need to do things like that, but in, yeah, one, I, after having a conversation with, with my friend who went through this kind of her house fell apart. Um, one thing that I, I realized was that during this time where community is community as we knew it is pretty much impossible. Um, we have to build communities in whatever way we can and nurture them and protect them. Um, yeah. And so think, think about think about the social decisions you make think about who you talk to think about who you're checking in with um yeah okay um now we move on to the last part um okay um so the last thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, my time on antidepressants. So I started taking, um, Zoloft, which is sertraline, um, about a year ago. And initially, uh, I started on yeah, like a, a standard dose, um, 50 milligrams. Uh, oh, well, no, you start with less and then you kind of build up. Um, and initially, uh, 
initially it really mucked with my sleep. Uh, and the reason why I want to talk about this is because one, I don't want it to be, I don't want to feel as though I can't talk about it. Um, and two, uh, two, I want, I want to share my experience with these drugs, um, with this medication. Okay. So initially I didn't sleep for like two weeks <laughs> and and if you know me personally, if you know me well, you'll know that like all I do is sleep. Um, all I did was sleep when I was really depressed. And now like I, I okay, I just don't have trouble sleeping ever. Um, I like, I sleep really well. It's probably my greatest asset. Um, yeah. And so I didn't sleep for two weeks, but I didn't really feel that bad. Um, and there have been like, some rare occasions long before or before I started taking antidepressants where I didn't sleep. And it was like torturous. Like I would lie there tossing and turning, thinking about all the things that I'd done wrong. Everything felt really serious. Um, but on the antidepressants, uh, yeah. Um, it just, I don't know. It didn't really feel, maybe it's because I'm older and it's been a while since I've had a sleepless night. Um, but yeah, it just, Tossing and turning kind of felt like, I don't know, just didn't really feel real. Um, and this, the theme of things not feeling real is going to come up again and again in my discussion of uh, antidepressants. Um, so yeah, um, so that two week period went by. Obvi okay, so I was prescribed this by my psychiatrist. Um, after years of being told by psychiatrists and doctors that I should try antidepressants. Just try them to see if they have, if they make things lighter and easier for me. Um, and I put off, I put off trying them for years because I have a re a strange relationship with sobriety. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I rarely drink alcohol and, uh, I don't use drugs recreationally and I never have and I've never smoked a cigarette. Um, and I've done this out of a fear of kind of causing irreparable damage to my body. Um, and it's, it's an irrational fear because like minus the addiction, what is one cigarette? What is trying a cigarette going to do? One cigarette minus the addiction or the minus the kind of potential for developing an addiction. Obviously, maybe you can say it's impossible trying one cigarette, you know, it's a slippery slope, whatever. Um, but yeah. Uh, and so antidepressants felt antithetical to my worldview. This worldview of being sober and kind of having a raw, organic relationship with my depression and, and everything else. And being in full natural control. Um, yeah, interestingly, this is just a kind of side note, but one thing that one, one of my main fears, um, one of the main reasons why I didn't take antidepressants for so long was because I was really afraid of not being depressed. And that might sound ridiculous. Um, and it does, it does sound ridiculous, but you have to understand that being depressed and feeling 
as though everything was a challenge and and not feeling excited about much and being kind of slow that was all i knew um and the prospect of having that taken away wasn't something that i wanted to think about because i didn't know what was on the other side um i guess i was skeptical of the impact that antidepressants were going to have um i didn't really believe that they would um yeah alleviate all of these symptoms uh and i i just i yeah i didn't know the person i didn't know the alex on the other side i didn't know what i would look like as someone free from the kind of you know ritualistic crushing spiraling patterns of thinking that i felt throughout the day um yeah so anyway um there was that two-week period where I didn't sleep. And then during that two-week period, during the day, I would like tap a lot and I felt really fidgety. And I was told that this is to be expected. Um, that was just something that happened. I was like, really, I tap a lot as well. Um, like I've always kind of like, I guess I'm not a fidgety person, but like I like, cause I really like drums. Um, I don't play drums, but like I watch a lot of drumming drummers on YouTube. Um, yeah. And so like, I like melodies and I like kind of patterns. Um, and so that's something that I've always done, but I noticed that during the first two weeks I was just like constantly tapping. Um, yeah. And then the two week period went by, um, and then I increased my dose, I think from 25 milligrams to 50 milligrams under the instructions of my psychiatrist, under the instruction of my psychiatrist. Um, and then I entered this weird three month period of change. Um, and the change that I felt, I don't know how much I can attribute to and the antidepressants and I don't know how much I can contribute to my lifestyle. Um, so I'll just give you a kind of insight into both. So first I'll talk about the lifestyle because I think that's the most important thing. So I started dating someone, um, who is now a, uh, yeah, a, a very informative and insightful and helpful and supportive presence, um, in my life. Um, and yeah, I guess we've since stopped seeing each other. Um, because I, I, I left for London, um, for a, a year. Um, but yeah, that was like, I guess that was something that was special. Um, and something that gave me kind of grounded me and, and yeah, I guess I, I don't know. I've had like a strange relationship with relationships. Um, and this was something that was working and I guess I've had, uh, I've, yeah, I guess it, it was just, it was something that was working. So there was that. Then there was uh, kind of um, a change in my approach to university. Um, I come from a migrant family and both my parents place incredible value on education. And so I've been raised to also place incredible value on education. And I still think that my attachment to the academic institution is the heaviest and strongest presence in my life. 
I started, I've always been like pretty studious. Oh, I guess not always, but in my final few years of high school, I was very studious. And then I went to law school and I was super depressed and I didn't do very well. And then I transferred to a philosophy degree and then I started doing well. But last year I, and like, I'm, I, this isn't me um, bragging or anything. This is just me talking about my, how things actually were, but I started to do really well um, by my standards. Uh, and I was very happy with how I was going. And so what, what, what felt, what it felt like, um, yeah, it felt like all of these things that were very uncertain were kind of falling into place. And at the same time I was taking this medication. I don't know whether the medic, I don't know what the medic, I don't know what Zoloft, um, sertraline i don't know what it did to me um i in like upon retrospect um in retrospect uh i i'm aware that it numbed me so much and like i can't stress how much it numbed me to like what i was actually feeling um it numbed me in relationships platonic romantic it numbed me um to kind of sensory pleasures like music uh it numbed me to physical exertion like going to the gym and sprinting and stuff i didn't really feel i didn't really feel like the brunt of anything anymore um and the whole time i was seeing my psychiatrist um and i keep returning to this because I'm of the opinion and my psychiatrist is of the opinion. And I think most psychiatrists are of the opinion that antidepressants work best when they are used in conjunction with a form of therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever. Um, I don't, I don't know how the antidepressants would have been helpful if I wasn't receiving a kind of like coaching as a coaching about how to actually navigate the things that I was feeling, like the fidgeting, the lack of sleep, the changes in like, um, the changes in like appetite, the changes in, uh, interest in things like being not, not being very excitable, but not being like super flat either. It kind of felt like it just like my mood was just like steady. Excitement was like pretty low. Oh, like, yeah, I guess like compared to others, compared to most of my friends, it seemed like I was pretty low, but not as low as I normally was. And that allowed me to do a lot. It allowed me to study really seriously. It allowed me to start this podcast. Um, it allowed me to kind of just enter into all of these different kinds of relationships with people and rebuild relationships that I cared about from the past. Um, and again, I don't know what, I don't really know apart from the stabilizing and numbing effect and the kind of fidgeting. I don't really know what Zoloft has done to me. Um, and that that's really scary. Uh, yeah. Um, one thing. So for a while over, I saw a psychiatrist in London. Um, I don't even know how that happened, but I like went to a doctor and I was like, look, I don't know. I don't feel so good. I like the, I think I have seasonal affective disorder. I, I mean, I like, yeah, I do. Like, 
I was diagnosed, whatever, but like, it's a pretty weird thing, seasonal affective disorder. Um, if you don't know what it is, it's pretty much like a, a strain of depression or a strain of kind of mood alteration disorder where if you don't have sufficient sunlight, um, you feel low. So anyway, I, I told, I kind of explained my psychological history to this doctor and then they're like, shit, like you should go see a psychiatrist. And then I was able to see one. So that was cool. Um, anyway, the I explained how I was feeling to the psychiatrist and they were like, what the hell you should reduce your dose. And so I did. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now. So I'm still taking them, uh, pretty small dose. Um, I used to be really regimented with them. Like every day, 9am I'd take them. Um, and my, the psychiatrist who I saw in London was like, that's weird. Like, I don't know. Have you ever tried experimenting with them? Like, I don't know, either increasing or decreasing your dose. I was like, dude, what the hell? Who do you think I am? Like I'm this paranoid, anxious, depressed wreck who is like reliant on your people like you to fucking tell me how to navigate the world. And all of a sudden you're telling me, you're telling me to be like experiment to experiment with these weird drugs. Um, yeah. Uh, obviously that gave me some more insight into how weird like kind of psychology, psychology and psychiatry is and how different psychologists and psychiatrists have different approaches to how you should treat medication. Um, I guess some value experimentation and some value rigidity. Um, anyway, the product of that conversation with the psychiatrist was that I decided to go off them completely. Um, and it like, it hurt. I went off them for like five days and it actually hurt. I had like, I like never, like never ever get headaches. Like you get like, I get stomach aches, whatever, but like, I never get headaches. Um, and I got headaches, or at least I think they were headaches, but I've had so few headaches that I didn't even know what I was feeling. And I felt really cold, like under my skin. And I guess it was like some kind of withdrawal. Um, I've never had withdrawals because I've never been addicted to anything. Um, and that was, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm addicted to, I don't think you can be addicted to antidepressants. I don't think they're addictive because I never felt like, I never felt, I was never like, oh, I need them. Or like, I never even, I was like, whatever. Like, it was very easy for me to stop. I was like, okay, I'm just going to like, but I think I'm also kind of like that. Like, I think I'm pretty good at making like, decisions and then sticking to them apart from waking up on time. That's like, that's like impossible, actually impossible. Um, waking up at the same time every day. I've been trying to do that for like, I don't know, like 23 years and no, no way. Wow. Something just fell off the wall. Um, yeah. So a few days went by and then I called, uh, I called a friend who's a doctor and I was like, this is what I'm feeling. And then I actually called the psychiatrist again. I was like, dude, like, this is what I'm feeling. And he was like, oh, okay. Just like go back onto the 25 milligram dose. And I was like, okay. And that, that's the small dose that I was taking. Um, yeah. And then that's where I'm at. And like, no, now this is where I am at. So this is like, I think two months ago was when I went, I stopped having them. And then there was a five day period. 
And then I also realized that you're not supposed to kind of like radically drop your dose. Oh, well, I obviously knew this, but I was like, whatever. I thought that I was like beyond it because I have, yeah, I have a weird relationship with my depression. I mean, I thought I was beyond like, you know, having to reduce the dose or whatever. That was just really stupid. Um, yeah. And so now uh, I feel like I'm dreaming all the time because I'm back in Melbourne and the sun is out and it, it feels so surreal. Like there's a big window here. There's like a pot plant and like, this is like, this is my home, but I haven't seen anyone to remind me that this is my home. So I guess to, to conclude the discussion of, uh, antidepressants, um, I would say it might be the first thing that has had a net neutral impact in my life or the thing, it might be the first thing that I really don't know whether it's been good or bad for me. Um, and I guess I'll never know because it's really hard. It's really hard to reach a conclusion about your conscious experience of the world and whether that's a good or bad thing. So like right now, when I look outside and like I see people walking around and I'm kind of envious of them because I'm not allowed to do that. Um, I guess envy is bad. Oh, well, maybe, maybe envy is bad. I don't know. Envy doesn't sound like a good thing, but like, I don't know. It just feels weird to, to try and make a conclusion about, uh, just, I guess, because the way, so antidepressants, SSRIs, that's what Zoloft, sertraline is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, medicine still doesn't know how, like why they work, but pretty much people who are depressed, who have, uh, biologically ingrained depression, which I guess is different from, uh, which to me, uh, sounds different from the kind of depression that you might feel if, you know, something really sad happens in your life and then, you know, you feel down for a few weeks and then, you know, you kind of return to usual, like my depression doesn't have to have a prompt. It like never has a prompt and I like feel down. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess the way they work is, uh, at least this is like, this is, I don't really know a whole heap, but pretty much you have like, uh, when, when two neurons are communicating, um, there's like a terminal, which is the end of one neuron. And then there's the head of another neuron and neurotransmitters, um, are in these little balls, globules called vesicles, and they merge with the membrane of one of the neurons. And then they're released into this like, uh, junction, no cleft. They're released into this cleft, the synaptic cleft. Um, and then they pass through, they like drift along the cleft to the other neuron or synapse. I don't know. So imagine just like there's like place a neurotransmitters, they go through a wall, they're in this kind of ocean. They drift across to place B and place B takes up the neurotransmitters and like does whatever. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter. For people who are depressed, there are a number of things that can happen to reduce the way to yeah, dampen the impact of serotonin on your body. One thing is it may be uptaken back into place A too quickly. Another thing is there may not be enough receptors in place B to absorb the neurotransmitters. So SSRIs, SSRI, that's what I guess the most, 
one of the most popular types of antidepressants are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, what they do is they inhibit the things that the the things that retake serotonin out of that wavy area back into position A. So they kind of hang around in the zone between A and B for a long a, a bit longer, so there's more time for them to be uptaken by B. And presumably that has some impact on your depression. But I don't know if it does for me. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. I hope that was insightful. Uh, yeah, um, if you like the podcast, like it on YouTube, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, please, somewhere. Um, tell me what you think. Reach out to me, get in contact with me. Um, you can send me an email, contact at alex.co, or you can message me on Instagram, alexlistens. Um, otherwise, support me on Patreon. Um, if you want to keep, it's really weird talking about like depression and then me being like, Hey, like you want to, like you want to become a patron. Um, but like, whatever, I mean, 2020, I've got to sell my soul. Um, anyway, (laughs) bye for now.